Well, good morning, everybody. How is everybody doing this morning? Hopefully you're doing well. Did you please take out your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 5? And also, if you could get out your sermon outline to follow along with the message this morning. Uh, last year, I bought a new propane grill. And anytime you buy a grill, uh, they don't come assembled, right? I mean, you can get them assembled, but I like doing those kind of things, assembling stuff. So you take out an instruction. Instructions say, you know, put the legs to the side. And then the next thing to me would be to put the top on. But they said that, the instructions said, before you put the, the, the top on, the legs and the side, you need to attach the gas valve. And to me, that would be the last thing that you would do was attach the gas valve. But I followed the instructions, and I attached the gas valve before I put the top on. So I put the top on, got it all together, and I soon realized that if I wouldn't have followed their instructions, I would never be able to put the gas valve on. There wasn't any room to get it in there. There wasn't any room for me to get it in there. So I followed their instructions. When I was finished uh, completing the assembly, I went online to see what others said about the assembly. And many of them complained because they didn't follow the instructions. So they didn't put the gas valve on the side before putting the top on. So they had to take the whole assembly apart, the whole grill apart, and put it back together. I'm so glad that I listened to the instructions. Uh, they designed it. They know best, right? We have to listen to the designer. But you and I, as followers of Christ, we have to listen to the designer too, amen? We've got to listen. He's the one that designed. He, God designed our lives, and he designed this book, the Bible, and he designed the plan of salvation for every one of us. So we have to listen to the designer, which is God. And so Jesus was sharing some things about the word of God, and, and he's in this message speaking on the northern shore, the Sea of Galilee, to the people, to his disciples, to the large group there. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. This covers his message, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. When you look at this passage of Scripture, this is so important for us when we look at this. The designer is God, and he needs to speak into our lives. Amen? God needs to speak into our lives. And Jesus did because he's the author and finisher or, or, or uh, speaker, of, an author and perfecter of our faith is what the Bible says. And the Bible says in John chapter 1, 1, that Jesus is the Word. It says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us who the Word was. It says, the Word became flesh, who became flesh, and made his dwelling among us, is what it says. That Jesus is the Word, that Jesus is God, and he was face to face to God the Father, being God himself, he is the eternal one, and he had an eternal plan that was put into the Scripture. And the Bible lets us know that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where it says, For all Scripture was God-breathed, and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? So we have to listen to the designer because he knows best, amen? God knows best. He knows what we're supposed to do. The main questions that we have in life, we think about them, what am I worth? Uh, why am I here? What is my value? What is the meaning to life? Where do I go after this life? Are all answered in this book, the Bible. The most important questions of life are answered in this book. So we have to get into this book, right? We have to study this book. And we have, but we have to study the Word of God properly. And what I mean by properly is there are some people who neglect the book. They kind of get it out and they kind of dust it off whenever they're going through a valley in their life. Maybe open up to the book of Psalms, get some uplifting word. Or they're dusted off, get off all the dust as they get ready to go to church on Sunday. 
or they go to a Bible study or a small group, or when grandma's coming over, they're kind of dusted off to make sure they act like they read their Bible all the time, right? But there's some people that do more than neglect. What they kind of do is they get into the Word, and they, they pick and choose what they want to obey, what they want to follow. And they say, you know, I obey this passage because I like it, but I don't like that passage. I don't even know why it's in there. So I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to obey that. You can't do that, right? And then there's others that some people will, will do that with the Old Testament. They'd say, man, I don't think the Old Testament has very little value for today. We don't need to really get into the Old Testament. And others will say, well, I'm just going to focus on the red letters of Scripture. If Jesus didn't say it, I'm not buying it. I'm not obeying it. I'm not listening to it, right? All those ways to study the Bible are wrong. And Jesus is going to share that in this passage because Jesus, as the designer, what he's going to do, Jesus shows us not only how to live, but he shows us what to believe is what he does. And he knows the Bible better than we do. Do you believe that, that Jesus knows the Bible better than we do? Amen? Oh, come on. Do you believe Jesus knows the Bible better than we do? Everyone should say amen to that, right? So we're going to get in this section of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. Really, the body of the message really begins in verse 17. And Jesus is going to answer the question. So if you have this question this morning, does the teaching of the Old, Old Testament even apply to today? He's going to answer that in this passage of Scripture. Two truths about the law that he gives. And the first one, if you have your outlines ready, hopefully you do. You have them open ready. We can't disconnect from the Old Testament. We can't disconnect from the Old Testament. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. God gave the law to Moses on, on Mount Sinai, right? And, and then later he would give the rest called the Torah, what we call it. But it was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He gave that to the children of Israel, and he gave that to all of us through the writing of Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And just as God gave that law on a mount, Jesus now on another mount, you have to envision this, Jesus on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, he, and he's teaching there. By the mountain, it's really just a huge hill that he's teaching him. And on this mount, he's going to declare in this sermon that doesn't really take long to read. But it, there has been books and books and books and books that have been written about this sermon that's deemed to be the greatest sermon to ever be preached. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus will say, you know the law and the prophets, those guys that wrote all those books, all those books, they're intact. Not one little letter, not one stroke of pen should we remove from the law of prophets till all of it is fulfilled, is what he's saying. That's what he's saying to them. And later he's going to say, I'm the one that's fulfilled them. I'm the one that's fulfilled all of that, he's going to say later on. And Jesus, when he was talking about the Old Testament, he usually gathered them and talked about them in three segments or three groups. And I want to share those three groups with you when he's talking about the Old Testament. He, first of all, talked about the law, the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the law. He talked about that. Then he talked about the prophets. Now, the prophets were those big names, the big names with the man's names at the top. You know them. The big major prophets where you have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are the major prophets. Then you have 12 little prophets or minor prophets. It's those pages in the Old Testament where the pages kind of stick together because you don't get them that often. Those are the minor prophets. Those are the prophets that he was talking about. Then you had the third group was the writings. The writings include a couple of groups. First, it was the history books, the historical books. There are 12 of them in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Esther. And then you would have that would go with that also is the wisdom literature, which would be Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and songs of, of Solomon that he had in there. And so you would have all this would fit in there. All this would be there. And Jesus referred to all these as very, very valuable. And he says he was the fulfillment of all that. All of that, not just part of it, not just all, of all of it, I'm fulfillment of all of it. So Jesus is saying there to them, which is very, very bold, because there were Pharisees that were there. He was saying to him, he is saying that you're misinterpreting the law, is what he's saying to him. And what the Pharisees were saying is just, no, you're misreading the law. They're saying that right back to Jesus. He's saying, you're misinterpreting it. And they're saying, no, you're misreading the law. And what Jesus said, when he said that nothing will disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. It's very important for us to understand. He's saying it's not abolished, but it's going to be fulfilled. What he was saying to them was extremely bold, what Jesus was saying to them. He said, you know, all those prophecies, all those prophecies that are found in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, in those minor prophets like, like Micah, that point toward the Messiah, Jesus is saying that it's fulfilled in me. That's what he's saying to them. It's fulfilled in me. And they were to be very disruptive to those Pharisees listening to what Jesus was saying right there. All this Old Testament, all those books, is fulfilled in me. And so it's very disruptive. So the second truth about the law that he was saying, and this is very important, our beliefs determine our behavior. Our beliefs determine our behavior. The way we live our lives is based on the way we live. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because do you, so corrupt thinking will always in time lead to corrupt living, right? It always will do that. Well, we know, we know when we're raising our children that if our children do something wrong, we need to change their behavior, right, is what we need to do. And yet everybody almost always acts in a way that makes sense to them. It's if within their belief system they act that way. Whatever they believe is the way they're going to act. So if you want to change long-term behavior, you have to go back and you have to change their belief system is what we have to do change people's belief system if you want to change behavior. Not just external, but their belief system, so they have to change it from the inside. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, let every thought be brought into captivity of Jesus Christ. Every thought that we have. So our belief system has to be based on God the Father, has to be based on His Son, has to be based on the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. And then it will affect our behavior because our beliefs are important. Amen? Our beliefs are important. The word evangelical has been used a lot over the many, many years, several years. Does anybody know what evangelical means? Do you know where it comes from? Well, I want to give you a little tour of that, a big picture of that real quick. So bear with me. I talk very fast. I'm going to go through this fast, but it's going to take me a little time to get through this. So listen, uh, where it came from. Because it's very important that we know why we believe what we believe, right? So the church was started in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter gave up and gave that great message, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and 3,000 people came to Christ. Amen? The church started then at that time, and they focused on the Word of God. They focused on teaching the Word of God, and they met every day they met. And they were learning the Word of God. The church grew and multiplied, and it spread through persecution. It spread through mission work throughout all the known world at that time. And then you had branches that would develop. In 1054 A.D., a very important date to remember, 1054, you had the Catholic Church, the church, in the Orthodox Church split. It's called the schism. And there were two big branches then in the church. 
Eastern, or Eastern Orthodox, United Catholic Church, and Church, the whole church. Although you have lots and lots of little groups that were formed out of that, many of them intended to live by the word of God that was taught in the first century. That was their intention. That's why they split. So some would get caught up in little side doctrines, and what you had, you had the Lollards, you had the Waldensons, you had the Abelgenses, you had the Anabaptists, you had the Baptists, you had all these little groups that, get, that met together. And then around 1500, the Reformation began. Began the Protestant movement, the protest to the church and what was going on. When the Reformation started with these big guys, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and John Knox, what they were trying to do is emphasize some of the doctrine that had been neglected or forgotten and distorted over the centuries. And some of the doctrines they were really focused on, one of them was, and it's very important for us to know this, was the inspiration of the scriptures. They say the Bible's inspired word of God, it is authoritative and without error in the original manuscripts. The next thing they wanted to really emphasize on, and this was really big, was it was justification by faith alone. That the only way you can come to Jesus was by faith, is what they were saying. The third thing they want to emphasize on was the priesthood of the believers. That every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, everyone who, who is a follower of Jesus, come to him directly, and they don't have to go to an intermediary. Aren't you, aren't you glad about that? We don't have to go to someone else. We can go to Jesus directly now because of that, because the priesthood of the believer. Through the priesthood of the believer, they also emphasize that every believer has gifts that they can use to build up the body of Christ. And so that was some of the things that were really emphasized during the Reformation time period. And so a whole new group of Protestants would develop out of this time. And it grew, and in one group, there, some would split and stuff. So of the groups of Protestants, they were groups that would break off, and they start to emphasize particular doctrines, usually, whether you would have, and you've heard of these, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, or the Methodists being led by John Wesley. Uh, all these groups had a lot of things in common, a lot of things in common, but they emphasized maybe one doctrine over the other or one leader over the other. So when we enter to the 20th century, uh, when we get there, two basic groups of Protestants would fit together at that time, not by denomination necessarily, but by belief system is the way they fit. So you had two different groups. They were called at that time in the 1920s, they were called the modernist and the fundamentalist. The modernist and the fundamentalist. The fundamentalist is really what you sound like, the fundamentalist being fundamentals in, in the faith. They believed in the fundamentals of the faith. And they were written basically by R.A. Torrey in 1909. And if you were going to be a fundamentalist, you had to believe these five things. And listen to them, they're very important. These are the five things you had to believe. You had to believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. You had to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You had to believe in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You had to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, and you had to believe in the visible form of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus. Those are the f five basic things that they had to believe in. The modernists, not so much. They were more concerned about doing good things. They weren't concerned about what you believe at all. They were just concerned about doing good works. So then after World War II, probably in the 50s, mid-50s, it was 1956, there was a group that looked at some of the fundamentalists and said, you know what? You started in with those five, and those five were good. They were good. But then you started adding five, 10, 15, 25, or 30 different things that became somewhat legalistic, and you kind of lost your sense of love along the way. And so this new group developed out of that called the evangelicals. That's where it came from, out of the fundamentalists, evangelicals. Billy Graham was a big proponent of that in the early, early start. But the evangelicals believed in those five basic 
fundamentals that they started with. They believe in those. And they're very important to our faith. We need to understand those, those five basic fundamentals that I mentioned. Uh, recently, when I say recently, several years ago, Barna Research did a survey where they surveyed evangelicals to see, uh, do they still believe in those basic things? And I'm going to read through a list that's a little different than the five that I read for you. And I want you, as I read through the definition of the basic of the fundamentals that they did their survey on, as I go through, and I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to say, do I believe that? Do I buy into that? Do I endorse that? Do I embrace that, uh, what they say? So let me read them, and, and you listen very carefully what I, what I say here. They define the biblical worldview as believing that absolute moral truth exists. The Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And God is all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Now, that's a real basic list, right? That's basic. That's very basic list. And there is nothing in there that's secondary in nature, but still important. There's nothing in there about, about the exercise of spiritual gifts. There's nothing in there about the second coming of Jesus or the rapture or anything like that. Nothing was in there. Just a very, very basic list. If you were to be an educated guess, and you were to guess, how many of you think of evangelicals today would believe in that list. Would you be shocked if it was under 50%? Would you be shocked if it was 17% in the church believe that today? And even as I say that, I ask the question of the sheep in our flock. Do you believe in it? And if you don't believe in it, then I haven't done my job as a pastor. I failed as a pastor if you don't believe that. If you don't believe in those, those fundamental things that we need to believe in. Because it's so important that we believe in those things in teaching the importance of how, how, how important those things are to understand. Because our beliefs will shape our behavior. It does. Our beliefs will shape our behavior. They, that's how it works. We have to believe. We have to believe. It starts with the believing what the Bible says. And it's going to shape how we behave. It will shape how your children behave. So we have to start here because our beliefs will shape our behavior. We sing these songs, these credo songs, where we say we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And my question is, do we? Do we really believe? Do we really believe? We have to, because beliefs will shape our behaviors. We have to understand it shapes our behavior. And this sets us up, because we don't discard the Old Testament. It's all very important. Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of all that. Matter of fact, as you heard me say a couple weeks ago, that when the first five books of the Bible... Uh, the truth of the law is really built upon in the New Testament. That's the foundation that God was laying. He doesn't say, I want you to get rid of all this. This is our foundation, the Old Testament, so we have to understand the Old Testament so we can understand the New Testament. And that's what Jesus did. When he came to this earth, he didn't say, I abolish it. No, he quoted it. Quoted a lot from the book of Deuteronomy. Quoted, quoted a lot from the law. So we can't discard it. It's important for us to know the Old Testament too. God gives us these illustrations and examples in these stories to understand how he works. And how he works back then, he still works the same. And so we don't want to discard it. And then Jesus would give them verse 19. He would go to verse 19. Verse 19 really sets up verse 20. Can you imagine listening to that group and you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower? Can you imagine being in that group and you're a Pharisee, you're one of those religious leaders? He says this in verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees is a group with the, in the religious uh, culture at that time. They believed in the Old Testament laws. All 613 laws is what they believed in. But they are a separate group. They lived in their community together. And if you wanted to become one of the Pharisees, you would have to sign a vow of obedience that you obey all these laws. And then they would watch you over the next 30 days to see if you were obeying all them, but not just the commands, but the way they interpreted those laws in their addition to all those laws. Matter of fact, for example, if you were praying, they were said, and you could always know who was a Pharisee, because if they were praying and it was time to pray, and if they were walking, if they're in the middle, middle of the intersection, they would stop right there and they would begin to pray right in front of everyone. And in their writings, they said if you had your foot in the stirrup of a horse and it was time to pray, you'd have to take your foot back out and you have to pray before you get back up on the horse. Or if you were a carpenter and you're hammering a nail and it was time to pray, you have to drop your hammer or nail and you have to begin to pray. Or if you're there, they even talked about a snake. They got so detailed. If a snake is curled around your ankle and it's time to pray, you couldn't take the snake off your ankle. You had to pray first before you could take that off. There would be motivation for shorter prayers probably, right? So, so they added all these things. They added all these things to the law, even when it regards the Sabbath. The restrictions of the things that you could not do on the Sabbath. They had 39 different categories of descriptions of things you could not do on the Sabbath. So you couldn't imagine, here comes Jesus, and he heals someone on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that, what they must have thought? The Pharisees would be up in arms, and they would say, Jesus, you're misunderstanding the law. And Jesus said, no, you're the false prophets. You point right on. No, you're the false prophets. You're the one that has it wrong. But what I read and understand from Scripture when I read it, Jesus never condemned the Pharisees of their obedience. He never did that. But he challenged them with regards of a few other things, and I want to share them with you to make sure that we don't do these things. He would challenge them with their hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, seven times he used the word hypocrite to them. He said, you put on these masks, like these theatrical performances is what you do to make yourself out to be someone that you're really not, is what he was saying. And you're doing your righteousness, and you're giving your prayers and all those kind of things to be seen of men. A theatrical performance, so they could see you. And he said, when you do that, you have your reward, the praise of men. Well, let me ask you, how long does the praise of men last? Can you say nanosecond? Nanosecond. And so many times, as Christians, as believers, we're always concerned about the crowd, what the crowd is thinking. When we serve, our audience has to be of one. We're concerned about pleasing him, not what others are thinking. Not what they're thinking. We, we, if they praise us because we're praising God, that's fine. But we're not out for the applause of the crowd. Because if you are, and God knows your heart, and it's a very fine, fine line between the audience of one, God, and the praise of people. Because that's, people don't hear when God's praising you. They, they don't hear that. But they hear the applause of the crowd, and so many people want to hear that. But when we get the applause from the crowd, you receive the reward. That's it. There would be no eternal reward, is what he's saying. It's right there. What you hear from the crowd doing this, that's your reward. And Jesus, you're going to hear me talk about this often throughout this series, because he hits on this very often about hypocrisy and about pleasing the crowd. But not only did Jesus talk about hypocrisy being number one, he also talked about they would major on the minors. And many people do that today. In Matthew 23, he says, you tied your spices, your cumin, and so forth. And so they'd go to the spice rack when it came time to be giving, and they'd take out their spices, open a bottle of spices, and they'd pour out the spice, and they would literally count the granules, and they'd separate the granules. And Jesus said, what you're doing this, he says, you, you need to be focused more on the weightier matters of the law, like 
love and justice and righteousness. Do people still do that today? Oh, yeah, people focus on the minor things and stuff like that. The third thing Jesus challenged the Pharisees, he says, you're doing what's all this stuff, but it's the outside stuff. It's all the outside. It's not the inside. It's the outside that you're focused on. And he uses two, two word pictures, two pictures for us to see that. One was the cup. He says, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. Let me, let me ask you, how many coffee drinkers do we have or hot tea drinkers or hot chocolate drinkers do you have? If you had your choice and you had to choose one, if you could wash the inside of the cup or the outside, which one would you wash? We would always wash the inside of the cup. And that's what Jesus was saying. We need to wash the inside. He says, you're washing the outside. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. When people go by, they see you all cleaned and washed. He said, but inside, you're like dead man's bones. You're dead on the inside. You're dead, which is horrible. Because you're spiritually dead, which is horrible. So Jesus was challenging them in these three areas. And then he comes to verse 20. Listen to what he says in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said verse 19, the Pharisees thought, that's us. Verse 19 is us. We, we don't relax any part of the law. We actually do all the law. Matter of fact, we add to it. We go above and beyond the law, and we require from everyone else. So we're good. We're great. We're, we're perfect. And then Jesus says this to them in verse 20 and to everyone that day. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees had to be shocked and saying this, what are you, what are you talking about? What else could we do? We do more, in a, more, in a, more than, a, than the law. We do more than it's required. And the disciples and those other people there, they were asking, I can't live up to that standard. They fast. They fast two times a week. I fast maybe one time a week, maybe between uh, lunch and dinner, but they're fasting two times a week. I can't live that way. I can't live that standard. But Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he raises the bar in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He tells them, he says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, well, how do you do that? Let me ask, has anybody lived the perfect life just today? I know it's early, just today. In all your actions, with all of your motives, and all your words, and all your thoughts, has it been perfect? But Jesus says, that's what he was saying. No, you have to be perfect to enter the kingdom of heaven. And those people listening to this had to be thinking, what are you talking about? Perfect? How do we become perfect? The whole law, according to Galatians chapter 3, was to show us that we couldn't live by the law. We couldn't live up to its standards. You can't climb a mountain of self-righteousness. None of us can do that. You can never do that. The Pharisees were trying to be cleaned up on the outside, right? They're doing all this outside stuff, cleaning up their outside and looking good because they thought that their obedience on the outside would somehow get them a place in heaven, somehow a place in the kingdom of heaven, but they didn't have the belief system. They were doing all these externals, all these things, but they didn't have the belief system. They missed that part of it. And there are other people today even where they have the belief system, but they don't have the life. In other words, they have a profession of faith. They came and they prayed some prayer where they prayed, but nothing happened. And it may be months, it may be years, that nothing happened in their life. When that happens, one or two things have to also happen. One or two things could be the reason. One is they made a true profession of faith, they, that they believed, but they never got into the Word of God and they never grew. They never got into a Bible study. They never got, had a mentor. They never were discipled. 
it's a horrible thing. Uh, they never grew, but maybe that's your case. Maybe that's your case. It's horrible. It's a very rare case, but maybe it's you. Maybe, maybe you're one of them. That you had a profession of faith, but you're no different than anybody in the world. If somebody would look at your life, you're just like anybody else that's in the world. You're, you act like the culture. You act like everyone else. And you haven't changed at all. The next step for you is to get in a small group, to get in a Bible study, study the Word of God on your own, to get the Bible in your heart so the Holy Spirit can transform you from the inside out to be more like Jesus. Because listen to me, God did not save you to be like you. <laughs> he didn't save you to be like your neighbor. He didn't save you to be like the culture out there. God saved you to be different, to be like his son. That's what he wants. And so if you're here and you're still like you were before you came to Christ, that's not why God saved you. You're missing the point. You're missing his purpose and his plan and his will for your life. God saved you to be like his son, Jesus. Not like your neighbor, not like anyone else, definitely not like the world and the culture around us, but like Jesus. So you and I would stand out, that people would say that we're different, and they'd be drawn to us, and we would be able to redirect them to Jesus. It's because of him, what he's done. Amen? That's what he saved us from. So if you're like that, and you say, boy, I've accepted Christ, but there's no change. There's no difference in my life. I'm still living my life before I came to Christ. That's not the life that Jesus calls you. That's not what he wants. So maybe you need to ask yourself, maybe the next question is maybe that profession of faith that I had, they were just words that I prayed. And there was no belief behind them. We, didn't, we never prayed from our hearts. We never prayed with commitment in our mind where we said Christ would become our Savior and our Lord and our life. And what it does, it gives us a false hope. Because we said some words, and they were all good words, but we never believed in those words. They were just words that we said. I remember many years ago where uh, I lived in Ohio, and I was out doing work around the house. I remember in the front yard, and this bus would always go by with the church. And they would come by, and they would try to get me to go, and I always gave an excuse. I didn't want to go, and I was 14, and this guy comes up to me, and he was a youth pastor, and he says, hey, would you just bow your head and pray with me? I said, okay. He goes, because you pray this, you're going to get to heaven. And he gave me these words to say. I didn't believe in anything, <laughs> any of that. And he gives me the words to say, and I, I prayed them. And he says, oh, you're saved now. Praise God. And he walked away. It didn't change anything. They were just words to me. They didn't mean anything. I mean, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't understand anything that he said. Just praying words that not, does not save a person. We must believe who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for us. You say, maybe you say here, say, then what do I do? How do I know? Well, there's a whole book in the Bible that was given to us to answer those questions. It's called 1 John. Five little chapters in that book, and I encourage every one of you to read that, to understand that, that, that book. And see what God does in your own heart as you read that. As you read that, the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, yes, you are a believer in Christ. Or maybe you read that and the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, no, you're not a believer in Christ. I can't tell you. God knows your heart. He knows when you accepted Christ as your Savior. Was it just words or did you really believe and accept him as his Savior? So Jesus says we must live our lives from the inside out is what he was trying to get them to understand. Our lives must be lived from the inside out. And that's what he was saying to this whole group of people there at that time who were obedient, but it was all on the outside. It was hypocritical what they were doing. He just says, no, you have to believe. He says, you have to believe in me and believe in Jesus, the perfect one. That's what he's saying. you got to believe in me. Your righteousness won't get you there. Those external works that you're trying to do, be good, be perfect, will not get you there. But you have to believe in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. God made him, God made, who made Jesus, who had no sin to be, let me say this, God made him, who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so stop climbing the mountain. You and I don't have enough time to try to climb that mountain, except Jesus Christ today, and Jesus will give you his righteousness. And how that works is you and I come to Jesus with our sin, we give him our sin, and in return he gives us his righteousness. It's the great exchange. It's where we come and say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and today I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, please do that today. And Jesus gives us his righteousness. What that means is that when God the Father looks at you, he looks at you through the shed blood of Jesus now, and you are right with God as his own son is Jesus. That's your standing before God. You are right with God. The righteousness of Jesus. And so if you've never accepted him, please do that today. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus. If you don't know him, accept him as your Savior. This morning, whatever track you're on, if you find yourself stuck, Maybe the external system, and, and you say that you know, it's a reality in your heart and life, but you say, I prayed a prayer, but I don't see the difference. I don't see my life has changed. I don't see any difference that's going on in my life that you may even get yourself right with God. It's either through salvation, accepting Jesus as your Savior, or what you need to do is recommitment, that you realign your heart with Jesus. That say, you know, I accepted him, and I know I'm a believer in Jesus. I know that day, but I haven't changed. That what we need to do is realign our hearts. And that's what this whole series is about, is that you and I would realign our hearts with Jesus because that's what he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was sharing his heart, the heart of God, and he says, because I want your heart to be with my heart, with Jesus' heart. So that's what all of us, we all have room to grow, right? So we need to realign our hearts with God, with Jesus. I think one of the best ways to do that is when you and I take communion. When we come to the Lord's table and we, we do that, because what the Lord's table has helped you and I to come is we're coming around one person. And we're uniting on one person. That's what communion does. It unites us. When you and I are united to, to remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. Amen? That Jesus did that for us. And now you and I are united on that fact of a person, of Jesus, what he did for us. And in that time, what we're supposed to do, you and I are supposed to confess any sins that we have in our life, so we're united. And all of us together are united upon him. But as we receive forgiveness from Jesus, we also offer forgiveness to everyone else. So we're united not only with Jesus vertically, but horizontally we're united with one another. Uh, communion was always, as we take the Lord's table, to get ourselves right before God, realign our hearts with him, and realign our hearts with everyone else. And so through communion, that's what we do. As we take the elements, we remember what Jesus did for us, that as we take the wafer, we remember that Jesus gave his body for you. And as we take the cup, we remember that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for your sins. And on that cross, he defeated sin, Satan, and death for you. So you and I can have eternal life with him. And what we do, we want to invite you to come and take communion with us. When I say it's for believers in Jesus Christ, because this is the Lord's table. And it's Jesus is inviting those who know him, those that are part of his family, to come and have fellowship with him. And if you don't have a relationship with him, how can you have fellowship with him? So you've got to have a relationship with him. So communion is for all those who know Christ as their Savior. And Jesus says, come to me, and let's share this meal together and remember what Jesus did for us.
So if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, I invite you to partake this morning. That we take these elements, come up here. We have three tables set up. They take the two cups, one on top of the other, and take them back to your seat. And then we'll, when, once everybody gets them, we'll take them together. But as you go back to your seats, I'm asking you to spend some time in prayer and asking Jesus, uh, I, I mean, thanking him for your salvation. That all he did for you, that he died on the cross for your sins. He sacrificed his life for you so you and I can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God the Father in heaven, with him forever. And also we come and we confess any sins that we have. That we realign our hearts with Jesus. That's what communion is supposed to do. And that we just confess any sins in our hearts and mind and get our hearts right. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we take communion. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we acknowledge that you are God. And we are your people. And Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins. You paved the way for us to have a relationship with you. By your death on that cross, your burial, and your resurrection, you conquered sin, you conquered death, and you conquered the enemy for us. And so, Lord, we come and we praise you and we thank you to realize what you did for us and accept it. We, we've accepted Christ our Savior. We come to have communion with you. Lord, we come to realign our hearts with you and remember all that you so graciously did for us. It's by grace we've been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, as we take this, that we would not take it lightly. That we examine our hearts and minds, Lord, and we confess any sin that might be there. But, Lord, we also come with attitude of gratitude and thankfulness. And thank Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son. And thank you, Jesus, for being willing to come and die for us. To go through all that you went through. Lord, we'll never understand what you had to endure for us. All we can do is say, thank you. That all that you offered is a free gift to us that we accept it by faith. None of us did anything for our salvation. It was you that did it all. We come to recognize that. We come to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we take this together, as we unite together and say, God, we believe. We believe in Jesus. We believe what he did on the cross for us. We accepted him as our Savior. And Lord, we come and to testify to that as we take communion. Lord, we ask our hearts would get right with you as we, can, as we just confess our sins. Be with us, Lord, as we take this. May we honor you, and may you receive all the glory and honor and the praise as we do this, Lord. We draw close to you through communion. And we do this, Lord, because you tell us to, to obey you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let us do this, Lord, with our hearts and minds. Remember you. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.